podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people? That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Stemp here. Thanks for tuning in. I cannot wait to put this episode out into the world. I just got off the interview with our guest this week, and I'm still buzzing from it. And the reason is our guest is not only incredibly successful, but was so accessible, down-to-earth, professional, intelligent, sharp. I just love when the energy matches like that. So who are we talking to? Well, we are talking to Sukinder Singh Cassidy. I'm going to get into her bio, but the thing you probably want to know is her last gig was as the president of StubHub. Yeah, that company that just sold for $4 billion. And along the way, she held large leadership positions at companies such as Amazon, Google, Yodely. She serves on boards. She's an author. She's founded multiple companies. She is badass, if I have to say so. Sukinder is the author of the brand new book, Choose Possibility, Take Risks and Thrive, Even When You Fail. For me, what I loved is, you know, Sukinder has made it to the professional mountaintop. There's no doubt about that. And I got to ask her, not only how did you get there, but how did risk-taking get you there? And then those other questions. Do you ever feel like you're not moving fast enough to the top of the ladder? What about money? Do you worry about how money is going to be impacted as you take on more risks? How do you balance family in your career as you strive to accomplish all those things you want to accomplish and more? It was such a great conversation from somebody I truly respect and value her opinion. Before we get into it, remember, you can support us if you like conversations like this, want us to have more, and you want to take part in it, patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast, sign up, help us out, and get access to ask our guests questions. On that note, I want to give a shout out to our newest Patreon, Bryce M. Thank you so much. We've got a growing community over there and a lot more coming. If you like this episode, if you know somebody who is trying to find their way professionally and perhaps could use this boost, please send them the interview. All right, let's turn it over to Sikinder as we talk about her brand new book, Choose Possibility. Take risks and thrive even when you fail. Enjoy. All right, Sikinder, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Hey, Chris, how are you? Doing good. I wanted to ask you, you know, as we think about, I know you just wrote this new book, Choose Possibility. I was reading an article you wrote, okay. and uh, I read that your goal was to become a CEO of your own company. Mm -hmm. I had the same goal, but I very quickly realized it was the wrong goal for me early on. <laughs> My first question is, why did you choose that goal specifically? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Well, first of all, um, I think we all, you know, uh, there are two reasons I chose that goal. Number one, because it's a leadership goal that seems like the ultimate point of accountability. And number two, because I am wired as someone who wants to drive and build. And now throughout the course of my career, 
driving and building with people who I'd love to work with building something great. So mm. part of it is, I wouldn't say it was an ego goal, but I would say that like, I, I just love to build and drive. And at some point in my career, I want the ultimate accountability that like both like the great and the, you know, and the challenges of what I'm creating are all on my shoulders. That mm -hmm. I'm a person who gets driven by that sense of accountability. Um, so yeah, those are the reasons. As you were saying that, I definitely feel a little bit of myself in that answer. A lot of people who have been successful have said similar things. And the thing I always wonder is, did you struggle early on in your career when you didn't instantly have that ability to, to have the accountability, to have the autonomy? Other people are telling you what to do or how to do it. Yeah. Well, first of all, I think two things are true. Number, number one, from the beginning of my career, I was in sales. So, you mm. know. I was in, actually, I take that back. I was a financial analyst and then I was in business development and sales. And so the good news about sales is you do actually have a lot of accountability and a lot of freedom, right? I mean, you are incredibly results driven. So it's probably not a surprise that I found success in sales and business development, things that require this combination of creativity and hustle, but you have a certain amount of freedom to get it done. Uh, so I think I actually may be in a unique role that I grew up in a career where I actually did have more accountability and freedom than most. But mm. I think you answered one other thing that's really important. I am somebody who is very wired to drive. And I think when I have been in career, points in my career, including early on, when people just want to micromanage me and tell me what to do, it doesn't really bring out the best in me, including from mm. like school onward. So, mm. so I think I'm also inherently wired like very self-motivated and I want to run and the, and I have always thrived as I always say to people like you thrive when you're in a place that fits your strengths and your values so imagine for somebody like me the type of environment in which I thrive also is one where somebody's like hey like I'm giving you guidance but like go for it and they let me make mistakes and let me try and then they're there to support me including from very early on hmm and when I haven't found that ability to, you know, I would just say, uh, drive myself where people want to micromanage me, even early on, it was very difficult for me. And I, I think I was in one job like that and I quit at <laughs> six months. Yeah. I quit. I was 27 yep. years old. I was like, enough. You know, I know that uh, you have a family, you have children. Uh, I do too. I have two young boys. How old? And the three and six. Okay. So little, little guys. And one of the things that I've struggled with as somebody who likes to drive, uh, yeah. always working, scheming, building, creating something is finding balance. I, I almost don't know how to do it. And then I'll feel guilty if I'm putting a lot of my time into work, doing podcasts on evenings or weekends and all of that. Did you ever run into this issue of trying to balance the, the professional or striving part of yourself with the relationship part of yourself? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think you're you're probably saying something that all of us can relate to. Um, and I, well, I, I always say, like, get, get comfortable with guilt, because the mm. problem is we're trying to express two halves of who we are, right? And I think, I sense you're the same. Like, uh, my husband is a compliment to me, and there are times that, you know, he's, uh, he's type B, he gets a lot of enjoyment out of his lifestyle, um, though he works. But I think sometimes he struggles to understand how I'm wired. And I, and I sometimes like, I don't know what to say to you other than like my work is an expression of who I am. Like, it, like if I wasn't able to express myself at work, I would feel like half my identity is missing. Not because I need to be validated for the work, but because I feel it's purposeful. Like, like it gives me joy. I find it fun. Mm -hmm. Like I'm one of those yeah. people who finds it fun. So I think this, I always say to people like you have two sets of guilt because you joy, enjoy both. Right. And Maybe there are people for whom one side is more satisfying than the other, but for most of us, we wake up and we want to be great parents and we 
can't imagine the joy that our children bring us. And then, you know, many of us wake up and we also are wired to want to, you know, drive purpose and impact and fun in our day jobs. Uh, so I've always had it. How do I deal with it? Well, I've always said to people, I'm always negotiating with someone. And it's kind of sad because you're either negotiating at work and saying, hey, this is what I need to make it work at home for a moment. And I have done that. I certainly did it at Google, where quite frankly, it was far harder when I wasn't a CEO and setting my own calendar or an entrepreneur. Like at least as entrepreneurs, you know, we're working all the time, but you can decide if you're going to go home and watch your kid's soccer game in the middle of the day, right? Mm-hmm. And when you're an executive, a global executive, there's no setting that, t- like you're dictated by the thousands of people who work for you and their availability. Right. Um, so I definitely negotiated hard at Google for what I needed. And then at home, I've negotiated with my husband and people are like, what? I'm like, yeah, marriage is negotiation. Like, I don't know what else to say. Like, we're just both trying to make it work and find our happy place and then the happy place for our kids. So it's always a struggle. I'm no good at it. Um, I do the best I can. And I just say to people like your marriage is a negotiation and so is work. And all you can do is try and basically set expectations and manage people's disappointment. You know, I think that's actually a really important and powerful message. I don't think enough people say it took me until probably two years ago when I stopped putting a lot of my professional or creative ideas on hold and said, I have to do this right now. I I know you don't want it to my wife, like at this moment, not in general, but you don't want it at this moment, but I have to do it. And then this was the hardest realizing I have to be okay with the fact that she still was upset about that. Like you'll get past it. I'll get past it. This is us negotiating together, but that's not the message about marriage and family that we hear. We hear it's number one, it's first, no matter what, uh, if you prioritize anything professional, that is a, a bad thing, I think. And yeah. you have no, to I learn mean, your way around it. Yeah, like I think you do. I think it's so binary. And believe me, like I always say to people, like my family gives me total perspective. Like on the days that like work sucks, you know, I mostly can wake up every morning and be like, my children are safe. My family's healthy, you know. We are lucky to all be together and, you know, and I gives me perspective. On the other hand, to your point, like, I I know that the narrative out there is like, okay, well, if you want to put your family first, you can't put your work first. And I think, I, I just think it's far more of a balancing act at any point in time. And to your point now, like, I'm sure the end of that conversation with your wife is like, okay, she's not that happy. Then the question is like, the second question is like, okay, what, what can we do to make it work for you? You know, right. and I mean, it's never going to be perfect but i think asking the second question is really important you know and Mm. and yeah like i don't know i'm sure you've suffered it too there are days i've been like wait wait you did that with the kids i want to do that with the kids and then i'm like okay well hold on a second i wasn't available you know how can i give grief to somebody else when you know but the converse is i think carving out the things you do want to do with the kids and making that happen is really I, i would say that's the one thing right whatever your sacred thing is with your family or your kids Maybe it's one thing that is your thing, but I don't think we can make our spouses feel guilty then if we're like, wait, you got to do that thing. And I wanted to do that thing. Like you, you, it's certainly true. You can't have it all. Like, do, can we agree on that? You can't have it all. All you're doing, like I do is like, you're missing out on some aspect. Mm -hmm. Um, and you've got to be in a negotiation constantly, I think with your spouse in a positive way. Like, well, it's funny. It reminds me of a previous guest we had on, um, this psychiatrist actually was telling me, you know, you always do what you want to do. And I was mm-hmm. like, that I don't believe in that at all. But his point was, if you have the choice between 
say it's going out to dinner with your spouse or working on your project mm -hmm. and you choose your project, but say you wanted to go out to dinner, you're lying to yourself. You're just trying to make yourself feel better. You did what you wanted and yeah. felt bad about having to make that choice. And I, from that moment on, I've been, my mind has been blown because we rationalize, oh, I don't want to, but I have to. Mm -hmm. And we just miss the fact that, no, no, you chose that because the result is something you value higher in this moment than the other thing. Yeah, that's know. that's the most honest assessment we can give ourselves. And it's the truth, right? So I 100% agree with that. I don't like to hear that either, but it's true. When we make choices that we choose in favor of something and against something else, we're inevitably hurting someone. So maybe the rational part of ourselves is telling ourselves that. But yeah, but but by the way, you know, it's you're not a bad person, neither am I. The whole world goes through this, right? As I said, the most important thing I think we can do is is figure out what it takes for the other person who you're partnered with in life, you know, or your children or whatever to make it work. Don't get me wrong. I totally wish I was the person who, I don't totally wish. I somewhat <laughs> wish that, you know, I wasn't always straddling two sides of guilt. But yeah. I, to your point, it's a choice I make because I believe on balance in my lifetime, maybe I hope I can achieve both things, even though I realize that over the course of my lifetime, you know, at any point in time, someone is getting short shrifted. That's absolutely yes. true as a result of my choices. You know, and people might be wondering, Chris, why did you go here? It, there's a very specific reason. I'm going to get into kind of your CV. I mean, I think the, the thing that people want to know is you uh, just left as the president of StubHub, correct? A year ago. Yes. Okay. And they saw, they recently sold for how much was it? We sold for $4 billion, uh, a four month billion. before the pandemic started. Please right. don't base, blame me for the long customer service times at StubHub right now. I've been getting lots <laughs> of angry emails from people. <laughs> 15 months later, it's like, I'm on hold at StubHub. I'm like, okay, I understand. I'm actually not the CEO. I haven't been for a, almost a, over a year. But yes, we sold We sold a year ago. Because when, you, when people think about having to balance and difficulty, I think it ramps up a notch when you're running a company worth $4 billion mm -hmm. or before that you were at yeah. Google or yeah. Amazon or you yeah. launched Joyce. I mean, you've done so many things. And one of the things I get stuck on here, we're just going to go deep is sure. your book is about risk, mm -hmm. but to accomplish great things, you have to do things that are more likely to fail. Mm -hmm. I, we interviewed a guy, Srini Pillay, and he told me, he actually asked me, do you want to live an extraordinary life? And mm -hmm. I said, yes. And he said, then by definition, you have to do things that are likely to fail mm -hmm. because that's what extraordinary. And it blew me away. How do you get past this idea of constantly doing things that are unlikely to work out in your favor? Yeah. Well, first of all, I, I think let's just pause on that for a moment. You were absolutely right that. And I think if people challenge them intellectually and looked at the numbers in any field, baseball, the NBA, trading, you know, and we like just to apply it to business. There's something called probabilities and win rate, right? And your win rate can be very low and you can be an extraordinarily great performer. In baseball, what, 400, batting 400, four out oh, of that'd every be, 10. that'd be the best ever. Right? Yeah. I mean, and maybe like shooting percentages in the NBA are more like in the 70%. But like if you're mm -hmm. a trader, right, think about your portfolio. You are managing portfolio theory all the time to be an exceptional trader. You're not counting on one big trade. So mm -hmm. I think um, I think the way I've been reconciled failure in my own life is at some point I used to worry then I worry and think that I had one big choice to make me or break me. And then what happens is you make a choice, you know, you you know, we often strive call let's call three to five years on any big achievement, right? You see the mm -hmm. outcome of your choices, and then guess what? 
you have to make another choice, even if that choice is to stay at the same company. But like at some point when you're through, like often, like, as I said, these, the learning and development and mastery periods of three to five years, if you want to keep growing, you have to make another choice. So, um, so I think the reality is I've dealt with failure because I early on, I realized like there's always another choice to be made. Mm. And, and the second reason I, I guess I've been able to cope with this idea of more failures is because I've lived several failures and I've lived a bunch of small failures. So there's nothing better for training you for failure than I said, sales. Like mm. I live like, you know, sales percentages are very low, right? So because I mm-hmm. have been in sales, like the idea of like working the odds has never scared me. But then when it came to bigger decisions that failed, and I've had a few that failed, I, t- uh, I told you about one, one before we went mm-hmm. on camera. Once you recover from a failure, ironically, it's sort of like the best, best vaccine in order to like feel like you can fail more, right? Mm. It's like, so, so I guess the way I think about failures, yes, everybody knows the wisdom. You have to succeed more, you know, fail, fail more to succeed more, but we don't really accept it though. I'm like, look at the win rates and portfolio theory and everything else from baseball seasons to like, everybody's playing a season, not a game. So you've got to do mm-hmm. the same thing. But I think the way it really works for all of us in truth is you have to have a bunch of failures under your belt, little or big, before the idea of the next failure doesn't scare you. Yeah, so you just know that this is this one's not going to break me, or this one. You know, I think about it as uh, I'm trying to teach my son right now baseball, and the other day he fouled a ball off his head. Yeah, and he was like, "What are you doing? Why would you ever let a ball hit me in the head?" Uh-huh. And it's just funny because you know he realizes, okay, that only hurt for about ten seconds. Let's let's go again. And it's kind of that thing where now, hopefully, the fear of getting hit keeps getting diminished you got to the it, point right? you'll actually step in there. But don't you agree that the problem with all of the wisdom we give people, including in my book, by the way, is like mm-hmm. you can say to someone like, well, you need to fail. But until you go through a failure and recover, nothing will diminish your fear of failure other than failing for the first time. Does that make sense? It's almost yeah. like the sooner well, yeah. you start practicing and getting some failures under the belt, like that that's the best wisdom I could give you because... I think then you ultimately realize what Jeff Bezos talked about um, in his shareholder letter when he first um, went public at Amazon. He wrote a shareholder letter that said, the reason we make decisions so quickly is because most things are two-way doors. They're they're decisions from which you can return and recover pretty quickly. Yet we treat all of life like a one-way door. It's not. Like literally, Mm. he's like, there's so many two-way doors. There are very few decisions that are literally one-way decisions. So I'm like, okay, go through the door. If you get a failure, you get a failure. There's likely a pretty easy recovery. And like small failures first, like, go ahead, try a bunch of things you wouldn't try otherwise, because the cost of failure is very low, but the benefits of failure are indoctrination for when the big choices come. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's a good point. It reminds me, as I was researching, I read about the jump you made. I think it was from Google Mm -hmm. to where you went after that. And you were talking, yeah, and you were talking about the the monetary aspect. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing that always gets me. I think now with a family and a lot yeah. of that responsibility, how have you dealt with that throughout your career? The the jumps like, okay, I could go here, have more impact, more autonomy, but a lot less financial stability. And I know what I need to do for my family and things like that. Yeah. So look, I think when it comes to money, which is one of the biggest risks we take, I think you have to be a calculated risk taker. So I'm not the person who's like, hey, just, you know, take a leap just to take a leap. I think there's a couple things that need to happen. First and foremost, I saved a lot before I took a risk. You know, like, mm-hmm. I mean, that's true. Number number two, when I took risks early that were financial, my parents were always there if I needed a backstop. So I knew that like, you mm-hmm. know, so early on when we're just responsible for ourselves, there's likely like, you, you know, 
you quit your job, you have to go home for a couple months and give up rent. Like there's, you know, there's a backstop. To your point, once mm-hmm. we have families, it's a different scenario. So I think you have to be a calculated risk taker. I mean, I think it's true that like, if you're the main breadwinner, you have to figure out, can you dig into your savings? Can you do it as a side hustle? By the way, can your spouse balance out and diversify the risk you're taking? Um, so I do think that um, financial risk is its own thing. And for me, early on, I did take a lot of financial risk, but I really did think like I'm only responsible for myself. I've saved up money, you know, when I made when I quit and moved across the world. I was like, if it fails, I can always move home for three months and save myself self rent. I literally did think mm-hmm. that. Um, and keep in mind, we were we we in the valley live in a very funny part of the world where people are like, oh, you took oh, so much where? risk, and I'm like, uh. <laughs> You got venture capital, and by the way, startups pay actually pretty competitively. So right. I want to caveat all of this with like, you know, there's real risk, and then like, you know, real financial risk. Like, I mortgage my home, I have no savings. You know, like, how's my family going to eat? Like, the, that's real risk versus the risk mm-hmm. we sometimes talk about. But yeah, I think you have to be calculated on the financials. And I, um, and later on in my career, I'd saved up, quite frankly, a lot. <laughs> so, you know, I definitely was very specific about when I took a startup risk again. I was like, I can afford it. if it. What is it about the topic of risk that is what you chose to write about? There, there must be something deeply uh, ingrained in you or your belief about the need to take risks where that was the thing you were going to write this book about. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. There is something. I think that the world celebrates these mighty risk takers and mm-hmm. I think that, that the problem with that is it makes risk very inaccessible, right? And I think we tend to think of, I see so many people who want to make a big choice or no choice. And then they're frozen because they think everything is a big choice. And then they're frozen. So they take no action. And that has driven me bananas because I believe that most of the risks we can take for upside today in environments where we're generally good, right? Like you're healthy, you're happy, you have a stable job. This is the best environment to take a little risk and see what happens, right? Yet we don't. <laughs> and then, mm. and because we're always waiting for like the big jump. So then we don't make the small jump. So I think that has driven me bonkers enough that I wanted to write about it. And then the second thing I wanted to really dispel was a second myth that people think that risk and reward is so strongly correlated over the short term. So they're like, and so you take a risk, it doesn't work out, and then you give up and you never take a risk again. And I'm like, my experience in my career is, Risk and reward are correlated over the long term. If you take a risk, you aim for impact, you don't know what's going to happen with that particular decision, right? But you get some reward out of having created some set of positive results, even if it's not what you expected. And then you try again. You will get a compounding benefit like anything, like interest in a bank on risk taking. I mean, you'll become smarter about your choices, but you have to be willing to play it played out over a number of choices because I just don't know anything that is a one shot to glory path. And looking at people out in, you think, oh my God, like look at their perfectly architected career. Oh my gosh, look, that person became CEO. Oh, look at Elon Musk. He just sent somebody in a car into space, you know, or now a (laughs) rocket and now people. And I'm like, uh, Elon Musk, like has been a risk taker for 25 years. You know, like this is not yeah. his this is not his first go round. And by the way, he's quite calculated about yeah. he's not rash. You think it's the opposite of rash. It's like he's, you know, he's playing out a set of probabilities and odds and he and he while he doesn't always win, his probabilities have gotten better over time because he's become yeah. a, an expert at making choices. You mentioned something there that I had written down and I triple starred it because I was like I have to ask you. You, you mentioned this idea of time mm-hmm. and 
I'm feeling time. I'm approaching yeah. 40 and I am feeling it. Um, and yeah. the thing is this need to, for, not for all people, but for certain, this need to prove that you did it um, mm -hmm. or that you mattered or you built, whatever mm -hmm. it is you're holding yourself up against. Did you feel that way? D did you feel like, oh, I got to do things faster or I'm not making it fast enough? And then the, the additional tag on question there is, uh, how do we get over that thing? Because you're talking about taking risks constantly to, to build up cumulatively. Mm -hmm. Elon Musk over 25 years, Jeff Bezos, et cetera. How do we all do that when all we see or hear from is maybe people like you who are like, I could never run a $4 billion company. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so I think first of all, um, you hit two dimensions. I, I still hustle. I still feel a sense mm. of urgency. So I don't think a wow. sense of urgency and risk are uncorrelated. I think they can be highly correlated. But I think to your point, like I also don't manage my career in 25 year sprints. Like, you know, I am so impatient for impact. Mm. And I and if you think I don't operate on risk reward, of course I do. Of course I wake up making a choice trying to achieve an ambition. Of course that's true. Or to learn something or to discover something. Like I'm very focused on taking on goals and choices and risk as well. But what I do do, and you probably hit this, is like I do measure my life in three to five year in in increments because I'm like, okay, I know that if I'm always just choosing the next thing and I don't stop and focus on unlocking the impact I wanted to have in the first place and making that choice, like I'm never going to build the career that now lets me be the CEO of something large, right? So I have mm -hmm. managed my career in three to five year sprints, which feels short enough to feel urgent. Like every day mm -hmm. I want to wake up and feel like, yeah, and to be tangible, like I can see it, I can feel it, I can aim for it, I can think about what it means, all the choices I need to make in the next three years to unlock the impact I want in five. Um, but it's so it's I, but it's long enough to actually be impactful. Does that make sense? So I just think it's yeah. about phasing. So I think when people try and plan twenty five years out, it's very hard. Or even ten, I see people who you know who plan ten years out, and I'm like, God, I don't know what I'm doing ten years. But I can tell you, I don't want to make a commitment to something for less than three to five because mm. I don't think I can have impact at that thing. I don't think I can set an audacious goal and be like, Oh, it's gonna be done in a year. You know, it's just impossible. It's a, I love the idea about phasing. I, yeah. I haven't heard that one much, and I think because to your point, it keeps you motivated enough, but doesn't get too large, right? Yes, exactly. And it gets missed, especially in the social media aspect of today, it gets missed because we see it and, and we oftentimes don't know the journey behind it, mm -hmm. right? Or we hear about these, these CVs of the people that have accomplished things and, and don't hear about the failures at the time or the sacrifice that we're talking about. That's why I wanted to mention this. Not only yes. does it correlate to your book, but also somebody that has accomplished as much as you to like bring those things back down to earth. Yeah. And by the way, I think all the famous people we talk about, their, their careers are moving in three to five year arcs too. Like, I mean, mm. whether they're one company or a different company, like if you look at the first five years of Tesla against the last five years, it's fundamentally different, right? Like, yeah. so I think anybody who's motivating themselves, let's say you are somebody who wakes up and is like, hey, I want to be at the same company for the next 25 years. Maybe you will, maybe you won't, but you're only going to be at the same company in the 20, in the next 25 years and at the top of it, if you're like constantly creating and exceeding the impact, you know, that you had in your previous five years. Like you, I mean, it is about successive impact, right? And creating more mm -hmm. and more impact as we move through our career. So that's why I believe like you have to take multiple risks because de facto, if you knew everything, then where's the growth? Like, like literally, if you want to rise, I do not know how you rise by only mastering the thing you know today. I literally do not know because you'll just yeah. top out in that thing. And then what? Like, right. 
so you know nobody starts as a ceo right so like by its very definition (laughs) you know you're gonna I feel like I can ask you this. Speaking of CEO, I, I'd like to demystify a little bit. There's two questions I have. Um, sure. One is what is, what does the CEO of a big company actually do? Sure. Like, what does it really look like? Because I hear things like we said strategy, we set vision. Does that mean you spend nine hours a day writing it on a napkin in your office? Like, what does that mean? What do you do? Oh my god, I think I think I think of a CEO job as like four parts. And by the way, it's pretty messy. You nobody ever tells you that, right? <laughs> Actually, maybe it's three parts. Okay, one. If you if you're a large company, which is different than a small one, if you're at a large company, you probably spend forty to fifty percent of your time in people management and communications, because mm. the problem is the distance you know between the CEO and let's say um, every employee increases just by the sheer size of the company. All you're trying to do is like it keeps increasing. All you're trying to do is decrease the communication span, mm. right? Like so, the like it's an organization isn't that keeps growing yet its biggest risk is like the distance creates communication challenges so like instead of saying something once you say the same thing 10 times in 10 different ways and you keep trying to flatten the communication structure so it's constant communicating it's constant people management like because you know and you can say what do you mean by people management the people you report to but then there's performance reviews then there's training your managers then there's retaining your team then there's creating culture like and by the way, it's like now those things aren't strategy, right? If somebody says create culture, I'll be like, okay, if you want to create culture as a CEO, I'd say like open your office door and have like, you know, 10 one-on-ones a week. Like that's the opposite mm-hmm. of bureaucracy. That's like, you want to hear what it's really like in your company? Like invite anybody to sign up for a 15-minute chat with you. You're going to learn pretty soon what's going mm-hmm. on in your org. So like people management communication is big. And quite frankly, as the organism, as the as a company, organization grows, it's like an organism. And like it gets more and more like, managerial in those aspects of people and mm. communications i'd say about you know what did i say a quarter 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 quarter. so that's more actually two quarters that's like 40 or 50 percent of your time 25 percent of your time strategy vision and selling that vision to somebody you need like money the board by the way your own leaders if you think like strategies like you have to both get the strategy for them and then disseminate it back so there's about yeah. you know a quarter that's about like strategy and then i think that the remaining quarter is like kind of hardcore operations, like, because, you know, you think operations is just about operations, but it's really not right. Because operations is about operation and people. Remember, I just talked about the people part. So like, mm. if you actually stripped out all the people components of operations and just were like, OKRs, like, what should, you know, what are the tactics we need to achieve the strategy? Like, are they working? What should we build? Like, so that's the what of, of operations. Like, oh, you know, mm. our lab is broken. It needs to be fixed. Oh, our logistics chain is like, you know, we need to change vendors. Like you're just making a set of operational decisions with your teams. So mm-hmm. I'd say quarter operations, quarter strategy, vision, selling, whatever, a quarter communications and people. And it's all messy. Like you don't just stay at the top or maybe some CEOs do. For me, I'm like top, middle, bottom, like whatever is going to get me the answers I need to guide the company. And so mm-hmm. I'm somebody who like goes top to bottom. I'm like, if you, if something's broken in operations, I don't understand it. I'm like, can somebody just give me a 101 on what's going on here? Quite frankly, in the case of digital products, sometimes I like to get involved in, you know, looking at the next iteration of the, like the, the product, like the website, mm. you know, like, you know, the UEX, the design, the brand, all that stuff. That's like hardcore kind of touch and feel. Your yeah. So really getting into all aspects. Yeah. That's and what by you're the way, they're, do. Yeah. That's their different CEO styles. Of course. But like for of me, course. I like to fluctuate high and low, but that's roughly mm. the breakdown of what a CEO does. That's helpful. I don't think I've ever asked that question. And I've just, 
I always just put them up there and I go, do they sit in their office and just write out what the future is going to look like? Because I always hear about vision and strategy, which, by the way, I want to talk about because um, especially in my role now, I'm always hearing about it. How have you thought about vision and strategy? How do you set it? How do you recommend others set it, leaders set it? Um, any tips or tricks you've learned along the way? Sure. Well, I mean, one very fun and helpful one, if you've never done it, is for those of you who've ever read Good to Great, you know, Jim mm. Collins has uh, what he calls the hedgehog strategy. What can you do that creates an economic profit that you can be the best in the world at? I think there's a one pager exercise you can do with any team of any size. Like, what's our hedgehog? Like, what are we here to mm. do that creates the most economic, you know, that creates also an economically viable kind of profitable business? So he has a one page framework that I like. I've used it on my own teams to set vision. Um, but to answer your question, like, first of all, I think a vision is both a combination of harnessing what you are and what you're great at. Like think about a company's unique gifts, like what is it good at? And you, and like, if I step into a company, I'm inheriting something, right? That the company's uniquely good at. It's mm. a combination of what you're uniquely good at and what you want to be in the world. Right. So it's, it's like, so I think people say visions aren't evolving and I'd say probably visions and missions. Like you want to mash those two together, which is why I like the hedgehog concept from Jim Collins. It's a pretty good one. And then the only mm -hmm. thing I would say about vision that's really important, the thing most of all is you can set a vision in one month, three months, nine months, 12 months. People keep obsessing about like how to get the perfect vision over executing it. And I'm mostly like, okay, I can like, let's just create a defined time period in which we're all going to come together and do a visioning exercise. And then we're going to set it there. And then we're going to spend most of our time executing against it. And by mm -hmm. the way, if a year from now, we feel like our vision needs to be tweaked. So it is like, it's okay. So most people are like, you never change the vision of the company. And, and I think if you set your vision statement, right, maybe you never need to change it. Maybe you do. It's okay. Like, you know, but mostly I like vision statements that are like co-constructed in a very simple framework, set it up, go execute, come back, check again, you know, and most times you find that your tactics need to change and your vision doesn't, but, mm. um, but that's what it is. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And one of the things there I was thinking about in terms of risk and setting a vision, do you ever find that, I mean, you've been in this, doing this a long time, running companies, setting vision, things like that. Do you find that, you know what, what's the purpose if it's going to change every year or two? Yeah, well, that's why I think you have to dis do you have to change the objectives and the tactics from the vision. So, like you mm. said to me, like, what's my vision for my career, right? And I was like, right. well, I wanted to be, you know, a business leader who created, you know, impactful products with great with great people and created wealth like i mean so those are all things i want to accomplish right but at the, mm -hmm. at the highest level i want to be a leader who creates impact right so like if mm -hmm. i if i set my vision at like i want to be a leader who creates impact then all the rest are tactics right if i say mm -hmm. so you can set it at any one of those levels but i think if your vision statement is changing year on year you probably have a problem what's probably happening is your vision statement is getting tweaked right but the essence mm -hmm. of what yeah, you want you know point. does that make sense so um, yeah, I think tactics and objectives get tweaked. And I think people often confuse like my goals with my vision. Your vision is like, you know, something that you're always striving towards. Um, That's a good point. The tactics change. Yeah. Yeah. An another thing you were talking about there is strengths. And it, I recalled reading in something you said, um, there was a point in time where you figured out what your superpowers were. Yeah. And I always loved that idea. So one, my first question is, what are your superpowers? Mm -hmm. And two, how do you figure them out? How do how can others figure them out and leverage them? Because I think we hear it, but it's hard to analyze ourselves in often in oftentimes. Yeah. Well, the good news about superpowers is if you ask those around you or you ever get 360 feedback, you'll find it 
um, you'll get it pretty quickly. And by the way, even if you don't, I will say to people, ask your friends and family what they think your gifts are. Because mm. our superpowers kind of like come to like how we mm -hmm. are constructed, right? We have gifts mm. and we have strengths. We can we can create strengths. You and I can both say like I actually became an exceptional, exceptionally good at financial literacy, at reading mm -hmm. and constructing financial things. That's a strength. My gift, like I have other strengths that are gifts that like you know I'm wired such that I'm naturally good at these things. And I think our family, our friends, our teachers, if you're younger. Like if you just said like, you know, what do you think some of my gifts are? They're going to come up with words that you will hear throughout your professional life as well. Um, mm. And if you ask your professional mentors, they'll tell you and they will also correlate to what people will say that, you know, are some of your inherent gifts. Um, so I think I'll say to people, ask. If you don't know, ask. It's okay. And I think that mine are uh, energy, uh, high energy, high passion, because I think mm -hmm. that gives me the ability to sell or to inspire or maybe make people feel like they're capable of something, you know, that mm -hmm. they didn't think they were capable of. So that's probably my number one superpower. Um, and it translates, yeah. by the way, it translates into a lot of bad things too, but like those, that's the, the best side of it. Um, and then when it comes to business, my second superpower is probably I'm able to process a lot of information very quickly. When you figured that out, did you know what to do with it? Cause I think that's the second part, right? I, I if I think about mine, yeah, what are some yours? of them well, they're like the intangibles, like you can connect with people, you can take complex things, understand them, and then simplify them for others to understand, right? Yeah, that's uh, when and, we share, yeah. Okay, yeah, and I I guess I did fall into uh, a profession that allows me to do that. Basically, that's my job, connect with you and then help you yes. get information so you can change behavior. Hmm. I, I, I just you realized just that answered the your first time, question, I right? I always say to people, yeah. like, we end up thriving when we're in places that, you know, are natural, and maybe our superpowers are expressed and, you know, mm. and can be exercised and are valued. Like you can know, you can go somewhere where what you're great at is not, you know, maybe at the heart of the company. So for me, obviously I found business success because I gravitated to both roles where who mm -hmm. I was was inherently needed, and let's say central to, you know, a company's mission. I was at Google, like I wasn't an engineer, but you know, I was a salesperson and it turns out that at most, at most companies, like the only thing that's as valuable as an engineer is being able to bring in revenue. <laughs> so I'm at, like, yeah. you know, you're going to be at the heart of the company's operations as opposed to going somewhere, let's say where revenue just generated itself and it never needed a salesperson. I haven't ended up in a lot of those companies early in my career because that like didn't play to what I was good at. Right. I, anyway, you end up thriving. I think when we can express our strengths in a place where they're both valued, let's say emotionally, but also like central to a company's operation. I mean, for God's sake, you run a podcast. You're also mm -hmm. learning and development, like those strengths. Yeah. It's no surprise that you are in these careers. Right. Yeah. Um, but I think, but I also think it's a, we, I think the pressure we put on ourselves when we're younger is like, Oh my God, what are my passions? And I'm always like, well, maybe we should start replacing passions with like, what are my gifts and strengths? And yeah. like, let me just go try environments where they, those things can be exercised and explored and valued, which comes to the who we work with, right? The, the people we work yeah. with value what we're great at. And I think this comes so full circle, and I'm glad it does towards the end of the interview, which is, you know, you might know your strengths, but then you have to be willing to make the leap or mm -hmm. the steps in order to leverage them. And that's yes. where risk comes into play, which is Absolutely. everything we're talking about. So um, the last question I have for you, and then we'll talk about the book here uh, for a minute and just let know, uh, let people know where they can find it is, what advice do you have for people who might have a sense they're either on the wrong track and need to change, they know what the right track is, but it's going to take some effort and sacrifice to get there, some risk involved to get on that right track. Yours was 
this goal of being that business owner, mm -hmm. whatever it is, how do we embrace risk mm -hmm. to put ourselves on the track that's going to let us be our authentic self? Well, I always say to people, the best way to start moving is what I call make minimum viable choices. Take little risks to discover and get proximate to what you seek. So let's say you're mm -hmm. thinking about making a big change. And like to your point, like people often think that risk taking comes when you make the final leap, right? But what if I said, hey, you could take three risks today to figure out, let's say you're creative and you, and I, and this is a real example, I won't tell you with who, but let's say you have a day job that you don't love, but you're super creative and you know, you want to sell stuff. I'm like, okay, go open an Etsy store. And they'll sit mm. on that. And I'm like, no, literally go open an Etsy store, <laughs> like go put your, you know, go figure out how to upload three pieces that you've created and put an Etsy store because you're going to just start learning what it feels like. That doesn't mean you have to sell a ton. It just means you get to right. see like what it feels like, or if an Etsy store feels too big, go put it on minted, right. Or like, go put it on Sazzle or, you know, if that feels too risky, like work backward from what's the smallest move you can take, go talk to an artist and ask them how they made the switch. So I'll say when people think of, um, making taking a risk to make a career change remember they come back to this myth of the single choice like one big jump and i'm like okay yeah. how about you take like multiple small risks to discover the path to discover what that job is like to get proximate to people who do it before i ever ask you to make the big leap make the, a bunch of small leaps and just mm. like keep making minimum viable choices towards that thing you think you might want to discover by the way you may discover on the road that it's not for you after all but isn't that better than like making, you know, a big choice without having no information? Like, so right. I'm always like little choices along the way. Um, in this way, like you can move like, you know, as, uh, as uh, our friend in Atomic Habits says, you can move 1% at a time and move a pretty big way. The same is true. Yeah, choices. that's a great point. Well, Sikinder, I, I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. The book is Choose Possibility, Take Risks and Thrive. Even when you fail, and I think we've covered all of that, <laughs> how to take risks, you're going to fail, look in increments. I love that. I'm going to take that one away from this. As this episode airs, the book is launching. Like, it's out tomorrow. Woohoo. Yeah, is, yes, exactly. Which is incredible. Thank where you do for you having want me. You, uh, where do you want people to go? Um, obviously, they can buy it on you know Amazon, which you've worked at. Um, yeah. Anywhere else, though? Do you have a website? Are you out there on social? Yeah, first of all, um, you can always find me on Twitter and LinkedIn is where I hang out most. Actually, mostly on LinkedIn. That's where you'll find me okay. the most. Twitter, too. I hide on Instagram because it's just another mouth to feed. Um, <laughs> you can find me on Facebook, but that's really for my friends and family. And then um, if you want to uh, take a risk quiz, which is a really fun thing to do just to understand your own natural risk-taking style, you can do that on the website, choosepossibility.com. Uh, okay. So you can do that for free, and that's a really fun way to get started and think about your own philosophy towards risk-taking. And of course, you can buy the book anywhere it's sold in retail. All right. And we will uh, link to all that. We'll link to the website so people can take the risk quiz. That sounds awesome. I'm going to go do that. You should. I bet I know what you are, but you can tell me what you uh, I'm going to tell you. I'm going <laughs> to tell you what it is. All okay. right, Kinder, Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Hope you enjoyed that interview with Sukinder Singh Cassidy. Her book, Choose Possibility, Take Risks and Thrive Even When You Fail, is available as of today wherever books are sold. If you're still listening to the episode right now, thank you so much. We really enjoy having you here. It definitely means a lot to us. And listen, if you enjoyed this episode or an episode in the last year, or hell, even an episode in the last 10 years, Please think about supporting us over at Patreon at patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast. Becoming a patron and supporting us is something that helps keep the lights on, 
and it allows Chris and I to keep making these shows. All right, if you ever want to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. And of course, if you want to stay up to date with all things Smart People Podcast, head over to the website smartpeoplepodcast.com and sign up for the newsletter. All right, that's it for us this week. Make sure you stay tuned because we've got a lot of great interviews coming up and we'll see you all next episode.